You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com. Joined, as always, by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today, we're going to start off by reviewing some of the hot stove moves of the last week or so. We're going to get into our three batter minimum and talk about three interesting topics this week. That's the all MLB team, the fact that Juan Soto may actually be Ted Williams, and some very scorching hot red hot takes from the Rule 5 draft that I think is actually still going on right this second. We'll finish up as usual by each choosing a random free agent you should know a little bit more about, some scorching hot uh, rants at the end of the show. But first... The hot stove, I don't know, hot maybe isn't the right word. It's it's starting, things are happening. It's like sort of virtual winter meetings week. I actually asked a, a front office executive last week, you know, are are the winter meetings this year still like the capital letter winter meetings because it's all remote? Or is it just sort of the same as every other week of the winter where, you know, you're texting and calling and whatever. And he basically said, yeah, it's, it's not really any different to us. Like it's a lot of it's remote. So the fact that this has been kind of a slowish, giant air quotes winter meeting hasn't really been that surprising to me because I don't think the teams are viewing it as such. But Matt, we have had some moves. Um, Has there been a more up and down, I don't know, last three weeks than the Chicago White Sox? Uh, Because it's not even just players, right? They got Len Casper, which is super cool. They hired Tony La Russa, which was confusing at best. They traded for Lance Lynn, which seems great. And then they went out and got Adam Eaton back. I, I, it's like a roller coaster of emotions uh, for White Sox fans. Indeed. Uh, I think that, you know, on the whole, it's probably for the good, considering I think that, like, especially with the acquisition of Lynn, you kind of have to consider them the um, favorites in the AL Central right now. Obviously, it depends a little bit on what the Twins do, but the Twins right now are down at, at this moment. You know, they're, they're obviously going to make some moves this offseason. Um but, you know, at this moment, Nelson Cruz is not on their team. You know, uh, Eddie Rosario is gone and it's they haven't replaced them or potentially brought in the case of Cruz brought him back. So um, the White Sox look in good position right now, adding Lynn to a rotation that already includes uh, Lucas Giolito and Dallas Kaiku, who also had a nice year last year. So it's it's good to be the White Sox. I mean, it is. I, I remember in the wild card round against Oakland. So they started, you know, Giolito, who had been very good, and Keuchel, who had been very good. And then they just didn't have a third pitcher. They started Dane Dunning, who actually ended up getting sent to Texas in this trade, and he didn't last very long. And then Garrett Crochet got hurt, and Rick Renteria tried to piece together this bullpen game in a way that I think really uh, sealed his fate, almost. I think people were surprised they let him go. I wasn't that shocked by it after kind of seeing the way he handled that, but in his defense, they didn't have a third starter, and now they do. I mean, Lance Lynn has been – I don't think people think of him like, you know, Jacob deGrom, right, Max Scherzer, and that that's fine. But over the last two years, he has thrown the most innings in baseball. He is the fifth in, in wins above replacement fan graph version. And, you know, he was only signed for one more year. So Texas, which is like a million years away from contending, really had to trade him. And I really like this for the White Sox. Like now you've got three really good starters, which is exactly what they needed. They could probably still use another one. 
but then they went out inside Adam Eaton. And I've, I have so many thoughts on this. Like, net, they, they had Nomar Mazzara in right field last year, which I was really down on. And he was terrible. He hit one home run. So they're like, okay, well, we are going to non-tender him. We're going to try to get another corner outfielder, which great. If you want something this winter, aside from right-handed relief pitchers, you you should want a corner outfielder because there's so many. You know, Schwarber is out there. Jock Peterson, Eddie Rosario, David Dahl, Michael Brantley. I feel like I'm forgetting like six other guys here. And they went with Eaton, who's like fine, I guess. He's he's an average ish player uh at this point actually uh, when I, I looked at him the other day you know that last year he was with chicago if you remember he sort of broke like all the defensive metrics for the insane season he had and i think you know part of it was he was very good but part of it is he had this wild amount of opportunities like the ball just kept finding him and he made all the plays and that's great and then he went to chicago or excuse me to washington in what ended up being a pretty consequential trade because it actually sent back Giolito and Dunning and Ronaldo Lopez. And in his four years with the Nationals, uh, won a World Series. So great. That's like the whole point. But he only took 400 plate appearances once in those four years because in 17, he hurt his knee and in 18, he hurt his ankle. And this past year was shortened anyway, but he broke his finger. And so what's happened is as he's aged and as he's had some leg injuries, he's gone from being like a very... Uh, elite runner in terms of sprint speed. He was once 94th percentile. Now he's down to 74th percentile. So he's an average fielder and an average hitter, which is all an upgrade over Mazzara. So if it's just like, are you getting better than yes? But why, why, why him? Especially with, you know, some of the clubhouse stories out of that 2016 White Sox team. Why not Jock Peterson or, or Schwarber or Brantley? Like I was, I was stunned by this. Yeah, that's the, that, that's the weird part is that they, there's one thing that like this market has, it's left-handed hitting outfielders. And so to sort of be like jump to the front of the line and be like, this is the guy I want. It's almost like you could have like waited two months and gotten Adam Eaton for like <laughs> a quarter of the price while seeing if maybe you can get Jack Peterson or Michael Brantley um, or a couple of the other guys that that, um, that you mentioned. And then there's also the fact that he was on the team and seemed to kind of be like by the end kind of persona non grata you know i take uh ozzy guillen with a grain of salt but he went out he was on tv a year or two ago saying that nobody on that team liked him. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's but the thing is rick Hahn and kenny williams were running the team then they obviously know this so maybe they think there's something about adam eaton that whether it's as a player or as a personality for the team that they want like like they want on the team i i mean like i think it's a weird move it's i don't, I don't like think it's a good move but I have two other thoughts, one of which is like I'm kind of giving the White Sox a little bit of benefit of the doubt because I think they've had a pretty good few years overall, uh, Rick Hahn and uh, Kenny Williams, and how they sort of they've acquired young talent, locked them up for long-term deals, and set them up, set themselves up for contention, for a sustained contention. Also, I think there is definitely this perception um, in baseball that a lot of front offices are kind of just like doing everything the same way and valuing players the same way. And that kind of makes things a little bit boring. So I always, from like a content perspective, I like moves like this because it's always like, huh, this is different. And I always like to try and when teams do something a little bit different, I think that's fun because I always like to yes. try and put myself like, okay, so what were they thinking here? Like, what do we think the thinking was here? And I, I, I in some ways, you have to think this, there's like some soft factors here because they knew about him being kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know a a a a tough 
clubhouse presence, and they still brought him back and paid, <laughs> and paid a premium for it. Here's here's the problem, though. I, I completely agree with you that too many teams are doing too many things the same way, and teams that are different are more fun, right? But if, who, when I think about the two most prominent examples of like being super different, I think of the current Colorado Rockies, who are a total mess, and I think of like the Dave Stewart era and Larusa too. I guess uh, Arizona Diamondbacks, who were kind of a total mess. Some of those moves were like off the reservation. I'm not talking about going completely off the reservation. I'm talking about like you know within like the the realm of you know reasonable moves, veering you know left or right, you know you know thirty degrees when everyone else is like within like ten degrees left or right. You know what I'm saying? So like I think this is more of that. This is like veering you know, 30 degrees when everyone else is in the same little window. Here, here's how this is going to end, by the way. Like, I don't mind one year for $7 million. Like, that's it, fine. Like, the contract doesn't matter. Um, what's going to happen here is he is, what, the eighth or so best hitter on a very good White Sox lineup, right? Seventh or eighth? Lewis is going to bat him first or, or second, maybe, right? He's going to get the second most played appearances on the team, and he's going to be the eighth best hitter. That That is my prediction for the outcome here, and that is what's going to drive <laughs> White Sox fans, um, absolutely crazy. Now, one of the guys they should have gotten, or I, mean, I guess they still could, but I don't think they will, would be George Springer. He was not a lefty, so that's fair. But can you imagine George Springer in right next to uh, Eloy Jimenez in left and, and Luis Robert in center and Springer? That is, it's maybe not the Dodgers in terms of outfield, but it's not that far off. And I'm I'm worried now, maybe they were never going to do that, but I'm sort of worried that because of what they just did with Eaton, it's sort of off the table. Um, I did a countdown. I did a, a 30 team countdown. And I know you're a little biased because, you know, you're my editor and you're already read this. But I assume somewhere on this 30 team countdown I did, of least likely to most likely, one of these teams stood out and you're like, no, Mike, you're out of your mind. So tell me, where was I wrong? This was your 30 team countdown of suitors for uh, for um, for George Springer. Yeah. Um, I think. I'm trying to think of like, hmm. before we get to it, I will mention that, you know, in regards to the White Sox, who you have at number four on your list, um, our own Matt Kelly wrote a piece this week, actually, after the the Indi- after the White Sox signed Eaton, saying the White Sox shouldn't stop now. They should still go get George Springer. A big part of his argument being that Eloy Jimenez is um, not exactly graceful in left field and that they that Springer would really strengthen the team in a couple of ways by really upgrading their outfield defense if they put him in left with um, Robert in center and Eaton in right, and also allow Eloy Jimenez to be a full-time DH, which is probably his future position. Remember last year they had Edwin Encarnacion, who was not very good, but also was taking up a lot of the DH at-bats, and now, um, of course, is um, a free agent and will not return. It was a compelling case, and I still think that you're right, that the White Sox are still a pretty good fit as you have them ranked number four. Um, I mean, I mean, like they won't do it though. By the yeah, way, they, they, I don't they, think they I, I don't think they will. Um, but they, I could see them actually going and getting another one of the other, maybe going and getting another one of the left-handed outfielders that we kind of talked about. You had the the Giants high on your list, and I guess that kind of surprised me. I'm not sure why. It just felt like I'm not sure if the Giants are going to be going after a guy like George Springer right now. They feel, you know, I guess he could he could play center, and they have Dickert sitting in Jastrzemski in the corners. So like. It's not crazy to me, but I just it didn't feel like you had the mic pretty high. You had them number six, or like in the same tier as the the Nationals in the five six range. So that that was one that maybe stood out to me. Okay, I'll buy it. I just sort of thought you know they had been in on these guys in years past. They'd been in on Stanton, and Harper. We expected they'd be in on Betts if um, he had been a free agent. 
you know, so the way the way I looked at it was like, you know, a couple of teams just don't need outfielders, right? The Dodgers don't need another outfielder. You know, the, the Yankees and Padres aren't going to. And let's be honest, a couple of teams just aren't going to, you know, go for this kind of contract. But it it's interesting to me because he's sort of intertwined with another free agent. Like we'll get to James McCann in a second. But if James McCann really signs with the Mets, then they have to get Springer. Because if they're getting McCann, they're not going to get JT Romuto. And the only point to get a lesser catcher is because you're going to get Bauer or Springer, right? Like that's why he's number one on my list. Also, it's just a good baseball fit. The Mets are so left-handed. They could use a center fielder. I, I would be shocked if they sign McCann, which they're rumored to, and and don't get Springer. The other two teams, um, very high on my list, the Red Sox and the Blue Jays. I kind of love him to the Blue Jays. Like that, They keep talking about signing someone, and he would just be an incredible fit on the Blue Jays team. I really, I hope that, I think I hope that's what happens. I hope George Springer goes to Toronto. I sort of think that, I, I agree with you that it's a great fit. I think that um, because of the uncertainty around COVID and the Blue Jays and travel, it might be hard for them to sign a free agent of this caliber unless the money is like they blow out, blow, blow the team out of the water just because the uncertainty of the first year of the deal of what it's going to look like. I kind of think it's more likely the Blue Jays, if they make a big move, it's going to be via trade. And there's a lot of smoke around them and Francisco Lindor. And so I'm really keeping an eye on that as a as a as a potential um, match for um, the Indians and Lindor in a trade. I agree with you. I think Springer is the best. Um, his best fit is, is the Mets for the reasons you mentioned. They desperately need a right hand hitter and they need a true center fielder. He is not a great center fielder, but he is better than Brandon Nimmo. And um, his metrics by Statcasts out above average. He's been like average or a tick above the last couple of years, which is. Um, an upgrade. So I think that like he makes a ton of sense um, with the Mets for that reason. Um, I forgot. I saw one reporter. I think it was Bob Clappish saying that um, his sense is that Steve Cohen, the Mets new owner, wants Springer and Alderson wants Trevor Bauer. Um, the Mets still don't have a GM, which also might be. I'm wondering if it's like a thing that might be holding up some of the offseason is the fact that the team that people are perceiving as you know the most aggressive free agent shopper doesn't even have a GM yet. Obviously, right now, Sandy Alderson is basically operating in that role. And I guess that's probably what might be scaring off some candidates is they feel like they're not going to have as much autonomy as they might have elsewhere. But that doesn't mean the Mets aren't making moves. And as you alluded to, there is this, maybe not rumor, there are reports out there. There was reports as of, you know, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. On Wednesday afternoon, there was reports from from a few um, reliable reporters that the Mets were very close to a deal with James McCann. Um, and then, of course, there were some other reports that maybe the Angels were in on him, so it was not a done deal. That could obviously just be trying to leverage, maybe to get a little more money from the Mets. Who knows? But it seems like McCann's going to end up on the Mets. And what's your feeling about that? I, I don't know what to make about James McCann. Um, I hesitate about this one a little bit, right? Because I, I, the things I'm about to say aren't necessarily positive, and I don't mean to like trash the guy. If he can get paid, like great. you know, Good on him. Two years ago, and like six days ago or whatever, two years ago, he got non-tendered by the Tigers. And, you know, the Tigers are not exactly in position to be shedding talent, but you kind of understood why. In five years there, he had a 76 OPS plus, so about 25% worse than a league average hitter. And if you were to look at framing, uh, and since this goes back to 2014, I looked at fan graphs here, he was a negative 30, negative 30 framing runs, which was 85th of 94 guys who caught 500 innings. So he got non-tendered. He goes to the White Sox in 2019, makes the All-Star team, right? Um, we're going to talk about the issues with the All-Star team in a second when we get to the All-MLB team. He made the All-Star team because he had this like huge 
very fortunate first half, right? 316, 371, 502, which is a great. He also had a batting average on balls in play north of 400, which is not a level where any catcher should ever be. In the second half, he wasn't very good. He was like his normal below average hitter in the second half. And I should point this out. The White Sox loved him so much that year that what did they do? They went out and gave a huge contract to another catcher. <laughs> they went and got Yasmani Grandal. Uh, and then in 2020, he was really good. You can't argue this. A 360 on base, 536 slugging, you know, a 144 OPS plus, really very good. But in 111 plate appearances, you know, his, his framing improved. It was plus. And there's some evidence that it's real. There was a good article in The Athletic last year that he was working with Jerry Naren, who was kind of like a celebrated catching coach. And this quote kind of really stuck, stuck, uh, stood out. He said, up to this point in my career, I've never really had anyone who was able to explain to me why the scoring worked the way it did as far as the framing metrics go and how to improve, which I guess is like a little wild to me. I don't know what was happening in the Tiger Farm system for all those years, but if he was really never trying or never really understood it before and he put effort into it and he improved, like, that's fine, but he started 27 games. I'm not sure how much to put into framing metrics in 27 games. And I had a really hard time finding catchers who were, you know, lousy framers in their 20s and got better in their 30s, like Tyler Flowers did, but he was already like decent. Um, Austin Nola, you know, kind of a, a not the same comp, you know comparison because he just wasn't catching in the big leagues. So it's possible he improved, but I also I'm not confident in that. And while the line was very good, you know, 111 plate appearances. And if you look at the underlying metrics, yes, his hard hit rate was was very good, um, but he had a 372 weighted on base. And if you were to look at his expected weighted on base, which is based on quality of contact and strikeouts and walks, 329. So it's like league average. So I have no problem with signing him to be your starter, you know, for a year or two years. They're really going to give him four years? Like, I'm just, I'm so confused. He got non-tendered by a, a very bad team two years ago. And now he's going to get a four-year deal. Am I? I, I mean, that's my mind. I think we, we. I'm curious to see if it ends up actually. I'm curious to see if it actually ends up being four guaranteed years um, for starters. Um, and if they do give him, it could be you know one of those three years with an option kind of thing with a buyout. Who knows? Um, so we'll see. It's a weird one. Um, I think that you know the over the last two years, like he's had weird. You know, he's also like you know in 2019 he was really hot, and then he was you know as you said, then he faded, and then this year was good. There seems to be some improvement, but yeah, the framing thing is hard to know. That's really the hard the hard part is like how much of that is real because I think that that's where you might actually be willing to really buy in if you think that that's, that, that improvement is real and is really going to be an upgrade um, for the Mets from Wilson Ramos. To a certain extent with the Mets, it's like, you know, the big change, assuming, and this obviously assumes that the, the deal with the, with the Mets happens, is the big change with the Mets is that theoretically with the new owner – sort of the marginal dollars are not going to be the same concern as they were under Wilpon. So to a certain extent, if it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm going to sign McCann, I'm still going to go out and, you know, sign Springer and Bauer, or at least one of them and another good player, whether it be, you know, like uh, Liam Hendricks and Odorizzi or you know, who knows that like, it'll kind of mitigate some of it. If it's just like, if it's just money and you're like, well, you know what, I, I want this guy and I think it's better for my team. Let's just do it. That kind of, I think that kind of remains to be seen. It's almost like it'll be more interesting to judge this this deal from the Mets' perspective at the from the Mets' perspective at the end of the yes. off season. Because in past years, for the way the Mets have been operating, a signing like James McCann would have been would have represented their off season. Right. 
Right. You're, no, you're right. If he's if he's the best guy they get this winter, that's a disaster. If he's the third or fourth best guy they get, then okay, then that that makes more sense. And one thing I'll say in his favor, um, something we've never really been able to measure or quantify or calculate is guys like Lucas Giolito, you know, sort of swear by him as a you know a good partner, you know, behind the plate, a good game caller, all that kind of stuff. So maybe that's true. We have no idea how to measure that, but. I don't know, four years for this one's kind of wild to me. The last thing we want to talk about before we uh, take a quick break here is uh, there is one of the the better pitchers in Japan has been posted, Tomoyuki Sugano. He has been posted. There's a 30-day posting period that runs through January 7th where teams uh, can, can bid and he will have a say in choosing where he wants to go. He has won the Sawamura Award twice. That is the Japanese version of the Cy Young Award. I was reading a uh, scouting report on him from Eric Longenhagen, at Fangraphs, and what was kind of fun to me was reading with the way he pitches. So I'm just going to quote from Eric here. He has sort of an odd windup. His torso rotates clockwise while his hips and lower half remain stationary, almost like the two halves of a twisted Oreo coming apart before things normalize and look like a typical delivery. I have not watched video of him yet, but just based on that, I really, really want to. Uh, and Matt, I know you wanted to mention something pretty interesting about him that our friend David Adler wrote. Yeah, um, and I went back and looked at David Adler's Twitter. He was tweeting about this back in 2017. So he's been on the Sugano Statcast beat uh, for you know four years now. Um, he said when Tomoyuki Sugano shut down the U.S. for six innings in the World Baseball Classic uh, semifinals in 2017, we got some early Statcast data on him. His four seamer tracked at an average of 2513 RPMs, and his curveball tracked at 2859 RPMs. Both of those would be very high spin rate. So that immediately you know, catches my eye. I mean, that 2,500 RPM for for a four-seamer is basically, for a starter, is elite. That's, you know, that's your Verlander, um, Darvish level. That's where, you know, the a true, like, you know, rise, rising fastball. And a curve at 20, you know, 28, 2,900 RPMs, that's, you know, 3,000 is usually the, the, um, the, the upper end you see, especially for starters. So those are interesting numbers. Those in and of, of themselves don't mean he's going to be good. But he definitely adds a kind of a level of intrigue to the free agent market, right? You know, because there's this definite belief that after um, Trevor Bauer, there's a big drop off. And I'm not putting him in Bauer's class, but he definitely like kind of beefs up that second tier. So whereas now at this point, before he was posted, you were thinking, well, um, you know, maybe Odorizzi or Tanaka is the next best guy out there. I think uh, you can maybe put Sugano, at least from, you know, and this is based on kind of most of scattering reports and the sense I've read of, of player of people um, assessing him, you can put him in that in that group. I agree. There's a, a ton of corner outfielders, as we talked about. There's something like 11 million right-handed relievers, but starting pitching after power is not super deep. We are going to take a very quick break, and we'll be right back with more of the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. 
Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Let's get to our three batter minimum section where we'll touch on three uh, interesting non-hot stove topics. The first is that the all MLB team was announced yesterday. This is the second year this has happened. First year is 2019. And uh, it's really interesting, I think, because... As I just sort of mentioned with, with James McCann, one of the flaws with the All-Star team is that it gets picked in the middle of the season in most years anyway. And so it rewards guys over a great first half and not so much guys over a great second half. I think if we're doing these teams at the end of the season, maybe James McCann doesn't make that team. So this is a really good way of seeing who the best players were for the full season. Um, the way the voting works here, 50% of the vote comes from fans. comes from a panel of experts. I I think the panel of experts is maybe misnamed because I was part of that group. I got to vote on this. Um, Fans were able to vote once every 24 hours until November 13th. And so this came out. And I have to say, I think the results were really satisfying. And it gave me a good reminder to go back and look at what I had voted a month ago, because to be honest, I'd completely forgotten. And this is the sort of thing, at least to me, you know, most of the time when I'm looking at a short season, I'm, everything's with a grain of salt, right? Like how much does a hot two months matter, projecting forward, et cetera, et cetera. Not really for this. Like all I care about for this is who actually did play well. You know, if you hit 450 and it was all because the ball was finding holes, like that's fine. That that mat- that counts, right? So when I look at the team here and we'll go through it in a second, um, I would not really say, for example, that Salvador Perez, who was the first team catcher and also my choice, is the best catcher in baseball. I don't think he's like a top five catcher in baseball. But based on what he did this year, which was to pound the ball, I had no problem picking him. I don't even know, Matt. Did you have a vote for this? I did not. Okay. Well, uh, do you agree with that uh, assessment of how you might have selected these players? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that that's probably how I would sort of do it in general anyway. I think that it's just like, it's it's kind of a, I think that for, for things like, you know, end of season awards and such, I'm generally more inclined to, to, my philosophy is more to just go with like what were the results and so like you know if yeah even if you had like a low batting average on balls in play and you maybe were quote unquote a little bit unlucky i'm i'm sort of like eh, you know kind of tough luck you know let's what happened happened and let's i want this to be like you know these to be a timestamp essentially like a record of what happened in that year and how the how everything actually played out so like i, I think that this is even in a regular year so especially so in a short year so i'm looking at the results here and um Mine aligned pretty well, right? So yeah, I picked you know Perez, a catcher, in the 2-1, and I picked Freeman at first base. I think that was super easy in that 2-1. I picked LeMahieu at second base, and that's who won. The left side of the infield, um, Tatis and Machado both won. I, I mean, they're both very good, but I have to think that Tatis won a little bit just based on, on fame because I think Trey Turner was a better player this year. Um, sort of the same thing for Ramirez over Machado at third base. Machado won. I picked Ramirez. I, I would have a hard time imagining anybody coming up with a different outfield trio than Betts, Trout, and Soto. 
that's what I had. That's who won. Sort of the same thing for Marcelo Zuna. Um, nothing that controversial, right? Like no one's going to look at this and say, "Oh God, Royals fans rigged the ballot box," like they did for that All Star game a couple years ago. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, to, to your point about Tatis, I think that he was definitely one player where he got off to such a hot start that the narrative for his year was kind of set. And because it was such a short year, people didn't have really time to notice that he kind of fell off a bit. Um, I guess MVP, I mean, interestingly enough, MVP voters noticed, right? Because Machado ended up being a finalist and Tatis was not. But maybe, maybe you know, then this there was a heavier fan vote in this that maybe people didn't realize. And obviously, Tatis is a ton of fun and still had a great year overall. But there was like a big, a drastic difference between his first half and his second half. The uh, starting pitchers for the first team were Shane Bieber, Trevor Bauer, Hugh Darvish, Max Fried, Jacob deGrom. Uh, hard to argue with that too much. I actually had Corbin Burns instead of who? Max Fried. I think Burns, didn't he like just by like an out miss qualifying for the leaderboards? So I'm guessing people went and sorted it by ERA and didn't even notice he was there. Uh, the only one I had a problem with, and you know, problem isn't really the right word because you know me, I love Nick Anderson. Uh, I went with Devin Williams on my first team. I went with Liam Hendricks and Devin Williams as my top two relievers. And the voters went Liam Hendricks and Nick Anderson. Uh, this uh, I'm trying to remember now. I guess this did the vote for this is different because it was after the postseason. So that's interesting that he still made it in there. I went with Devin Williams anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Williams made the second team. So, you know, he did, he did, he did get recognition. Um, so, uh, your point about Corbin Burns is a good one with the leaderboard because he didn't make the second team either. So I think that might be an indication yeah. that he sort of, um, was a victim to the, uh, that, uh, that leaderboard, I guess, technicality for, for back of a lack of a better word. This is the second year of the all B team. I'm glad it happened. It's a very good for the historical record. I think it's surprising. It kind of took this long because as you noted, there have always been problems with, all-star teams because they can reward. I think generally for for like Hall of Fame level players, they're not misleading. It's misleading when a guy shows up as an all-star like once or twice and you're like, really? You know, where it's like, oh, one-time all-star. And then you go and look at right. the year and you're like, oh, now I know. Whether it was because they just had a really hot <laughs> first six weeks or they were just like Who am I thinking of? the best um, player on a Brian LaHare. Team. That's the you one know, that always so it stands out to me. Brian LaHare, who was in like the minors, you know, two months later or whatever. Yeah, I think it was the 2000. I want to say it was at the, it was the, I remember it, it was at the 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 All Star Game at City Field. So I want to say that was 2013. I remember sitting in the, the media room and looking at his his like his podium, and I was like, "This is so nice for him." And I was like, "This is definitely going to be one of those where we look back at this in five years." And we're like, "What?" Um, it, it, I'm looking at it now. It was 2012. That's um, yes, in his his he made the All Star Game in 2012, and his final game in the majors October 3rd, 2012. So that says a little bit about that one. Let's move on to item number two. I wrote about how Juan Soto is off to um, a really historic start to his career. And I feel like sometimes we throw that term around too much, like, oh, this guy's the best ever this, a historic that. But it really does apply to Juan Soto. And the way I looked at that was because if you look at everybody who, you know, he just turned 22, right? So through his age 21 season, you look at everybody who's taken at least a 1,000 plate appearances before he turned 22, um, there's not even that many guys. There's only 67 of them. Here's the list of the best OPS plus, the best hitting performances through age 21 with a minimum of 1,000 plate appearances ever. Uh, Mike Trout, who's quite good, Ted Williams, Jimmy Fox, Rogers Hornsby, Ty Cobb, Juan Soto, <laughs> ahead of Melot, Eddie Matthews, Mickey Mantle, Frank Robinson. You you do not do that by accident. And I feel like we, you know, we were stunned by him 
that first season when he came up, like, cause then they bump him up from like single A or double A or something like that. Yeah. For, and, for Mayball. And he wasn't, I mean, he was like a, a highly rated prospect, but like, you know, going into that year, Ronald Lacuna right. Jr. had way more hype. Juan Soto ranked, I think on the MLB rankings, the pipeline rankings, like in the 15 to 20 range going into that year. And, you know, it's, I almost feel like I don't really have the vocabulary to explain how dominant he's been. But as I said, on that list, Ted Williams was the second best player. You know, again, Mike Trout. We probably still don't talk about Mike Trout enough. And uh, you pointed this out to me. As I was writing this, our friend Dan Samborski, who does the Zips projection system at Fangraphs, published the Washington 2021 Zips projections. And for each of those, um, and he doesn't pick these names, this is like dynamically output, the projection system finds a historical comparable through that player's age and projections and past performance. The name was Ted Williams. So I know it's wild to say that a guy who just turned 22, like six weeks ago, is off to a Ted Williams-esque start. But I would go so far as to say this, if he doesn't make the Hall of Fame, I'll be stunned. At this point, I, I think he's like, if he's healthy... There's no way he's not a Hall of Famer. You do not get off to a start like this without having that kind of talent. I mean, just look at the names we just mentioned. Yeah, no, it's, and I'm, I'm looking at his uh, his uh, his baseball savant page uh, where they have the percentile rankings for all the different categories, and it's, yeah, it's red. comical. Red, 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 red. <laughs> yeah, expected batting average, 99th percentile. Expected slugging, 100th percentile. Walk rate, 100th percentile. Expected weight on base, 100th percentile. Bauer, Bauer, barrel percentage, 99th percentile. Um, it's pretty wild. He is, you know, well on his way, um, knock on wood, health permitting, um, to being an all-time great hitter. Just a, just a, a real a real joy to watch. And it's, I mean, he came up basically the same week or maybe like as, as Ronald Acuna Jr. So those two have always kind of been um, – compared together and i was actually like in my mind it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of um when we were when when we were kids um <laughs> griffey and bonds where like griffey was the center fielder who was like more exciting but if you actually went you know you went and looked at their baseball reference pages and looked at their numbers it was like oh actually bonds is but even bonds like pirates bonds even like early e- even early giants bonds before the scandal of PEDs and all that was better, but it was just like, he was sort of just like a steadier presence who didn't have quite the same level of like um, pizzazz. So I think it's a cool, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a exciting, this is not a knock on either one. I think watching Soto hit is, is, um, is one of the more enjoyable experiences as a, as a baseball uh, observer. And, but he and Acuna by virtue of coming up the same like week and being in the same division, I think will kind of always be compared to one another. That's interesting because I never really perceived Bonds and Griffey in that same way. And I think it was because Bonds went to college and he's a couple years older anyway, right? So there was, what, a five or six year difference in age, whereas I think Soto and Acuna are within a year or so of each other. And for the record, Braves fans, I could have written this article about Acuna too. (laughs) He is also on a a Hall of Fame trajectory. And if I had to pick one, which I hate to do because they're both fantastic, I think I pick Soto. And it's not by a lot. Acuna is a better defender, better base runner, and probably has more raw power. But I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone, especially this young, with the command of the strike zone that Soto has. Like he is, he's already up to that Vado level where if he disagrees with an umpire's call, I will immediately take Soto's side because if he says it, it must be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can't teach that. And I think that age is a little bit better than than defense. 
um, or fielding or anything. All right, our third item in our three batter minimum. Matt, I can't wait for your hot rule five takes. The rule five draft just finished. Um, basically what this means is for players who have not been added to the 40-man roster, who um, are have been in the minors long enough to be eligible, a team can select them, but they have to keep them on the major league roster for the entire season. Most of these players are coming up from A-ball and don't really belong in the majors, and a lot of them don't make it. The top pick in the draft for the Pirates, right-handed pitcher Jose Soriano of the Angels. I'm not going to go through all of the 56 or so players who got picked. Um, do you know any of these guys? Is there, who stands out to you? Anybody? Um, like I used I'll to admit, so, I don't. Uh, I can't the say. That, I mean, these are some deep cuts here. These players. They're, I mean, they're not. They're they're not non-prospects. A lot of them rank on the top 30 of the the organization that they were in. But you know, as you said, if you if you were drafted out of college, um, you're eligible after three years. If you signed out of high school or signed as an international free agent, um, you're eligible after four years. So um, a lot of these guys are you know players who were kind of stalled out at a ball, but still have some tools and usually see more pitchers get selected just because like there's a greater chance you could kind of like stash a pitcher at the back of your bullpen, especially if they've got like one plus pitch and hide them for a year if need be. Um, I think I find it kind of ironic that the, the, the most pitching starved organization in baseball, the angels <laughs> had a player taken <laughs> with the number one overall pick um, uh, reading uh, Jose Soriano's uh, uh, sky report. Uh, MLB pipeline gives him a 70 grade fastball. So that's fun. That's on a 2080 scouting scale. So basically means this guy can throw hundred miles an hour. So, um, hard, not hard to see why someone with that, uh, that scale would, uh, would go number one overall. I was looking back at the previous couple of years just to see, you know, who, who stood up, stood out from the last couple of years that we might not have noticed at the time. And last year, the number fifth, our number five pick was Johan Ramirez by the Mariners, who was drafted from the Astros organization. And I remember him. I remember that name because after like two outings this year, um, his like the movement on his slider just like popped as being insane. And if you go look at what he did after jumping right up from the, the mid to low minors, 26 strikeouts in 20 innings this year in the major leagues is pretty good. Now, 20 walks in 20 innings, that's uh, not quite so good. The other guy that was interesting to me is uh, Danny Jimenez, and he was selected by the A's from the Blue Jays. And I was like, why do I know that name? That is because Danny Jimenez was also a Rule 5 pick last year. (laughs) um, He was picked by the Giants from the Blue Jays, got into two games, didn't stick, and was returned. And so now he is a Rule 5 pick for a second year in a row. I don't actually know what the record is, for most times being a Rule 5 pick, but I thought that was um, pretty interesting. The other thing that stood out to me from this draft was it seemed like the Dodgers had a ton of guys picked. And I think if you're thinking about like which teams have so much organizational depth that they can't find room for them all on the 40-man roster, this is a good place to start. Uh, like Jordan Sheffield got picked. There are even guys who, like Zach Pop, who is from the Orioles. He was a Dodger. He got traded in the Manny Machado deal. So I think that's an interesting way to look at guys uh, and teams who have a lot of depth. I also went back and looked at the 2018 draft pretty quickly. Um, the first three names are actually all pretty interesting there. The first name in 2018 was Richie Martin by the A's, and he's played a decent amount of shortstop for them. The second the pick, he was with the A's and he was drafted by the Orioles. By the Orioles, yes. The second yeah. pick, um, from the Rays to the Royals, Sam McWilliams, who has not yet pitched in the majors, but 
had like an eight ERA in 2019 and the Mets gave him a major league deal, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I was going to say Tom Verducci did a really interesting story about him in Sports Illustrated this week about sort of how he was able to market himself to teams using the um, TrackMan pitch data that he got while pitching in the alternate site for the Rays this year and basically was able to use like his data that he'd that he'd gotten while pitching at the alternate site to sort of prove to teams that he had major league cal- cal- caliber stuff. Which I think is cool, but I'm also a little skeptical because if there's any team that would, you'd think, know what they had, it would be the Rays. So if they were willing to let him go, uh, I'm a little skeptical. And the third pick in the 2018 Rule 5 draft was uh, Jordan Romano, who actually ended up being a pretty useful piece for the Blue Jays uh, this year. He wasn't actually drafted by the Blue Jays, but found his way there. So I don't know if any of these guys are going to be a big deal in 2021. Most of them probably won't be, but it's kind of a, an interesting reminder that you know every year some of these guys do succeed. The uh, the big time historical examples are Johan Santana and Roberto Clemente, and I'm sure there's some other ones uh, I'm not thinking about. We're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward Doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will finish up as we do each week. Matt and I will pick a random player. This time around, it's a random free agent that you should know more about. Now, mine, I guess, is technically not a free agent because he just signed yesterday, although I think it's only reportedly signed, so I'm going to go with it anyway. Chris Flexen signed a two-year deal with the Seattle Mariners. Now, he's had himself kind of an interesting career path. He was a 14th round pick by the Mets in 2012. Got into 68 innings over three years from 2017 to 2019. They were not very good. 807 ERA, 49 strikeouts, and 54 walks. That's right. More walks than strikeouts, not what you want. About a year ago, he was designated for assignment by the Mets after signing Brad Brock, and he went off to Korea. He pitched for Doosan. 116 and two-thirds innings in 2020 for them. 301 ERA, more importantly, 132 strikeouts and 30 walks in five starts in October. He had 42 strikeouts and three walks, a 0.85 ERA. Wow, that is a massive turnaround. Now you might say, you know, the KBO, uh, the quality of offense there isn't the same as the majors. That's true, but it's still pretty good. Um, I I found this site, and this is by, uh, I think he's a college student. His name is Ben Howell. Uh, he writes for Pitcher List. He focuses on the KBO. He has a 26-page Chris Flexen 2020 report, which he claims, and I swear this is what he claims, because uh, there's not like necessarily a baseball savant that we have for Korea. Um, data for pitches 
was manually charted from ESPN and or Twitch broadcast. 26 pages on Chris Flexen. That is dedication. Here's what he tweeted. He looked, uh, going back to 2002, at all KBO seasons where pitchers had a strikeout rate higher than 28% and a FIP, a fielding independent pitching, below three. There were two such seasons. Chris Flexen just did it. Hyunjin Ryu did it at 20, in 2012. That is it. Um, so now he's got a two-year deal with the Mariners. And what changed? Uh, according to Howell here, his curveball usage tripled in the KBO. Sounds like his velocity ticked up a bit. He already had a high spin curveball um, with the Mets. I don't know if he's going to be a starter with the Mariners. I don't know if he's going to be a, a reliever or a swingman. The Mariners are vaguely interesting with the rotation. You know, Sheffield and Marco Gonzalez. Uh, Kikuche was a little better this last year. But you would think that a guy who got cut by the Mets a year ago and has an 807 ERA is someone you could safely ignore. And I'm not so sure that's true for Chris Flexen. I'm actually pretty interested to see what he is when he comes back. This is really similar to what happened with uh, Josh Lindblom, right? Who went? Yeah, but then he was not good this year. <laughs> Again, but I mean, I, 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 I throw this season out kind of, you know, you sort of have to, I mean, this is such a, such a short year, weird year. You know, he's coming back from Korea trying to adjust to, you know, the U.S. schedule and everything. I kind of, I kind of give him a bit of a mulligan. Yes. Um, also, Lindblom is 33 and Flexen is only 26. It's it's you know this this path has been, you know, um, but I think it's being charted. Of course, some of it will depend on how successful these guys are. Because if they are not successful, then maybe people will stop looking at you know guys who go to Korea and come back as as such great value. But even Lindblom struck out more than a batter per inning. His expected ERA per stat cast was four point oh one, whereas his actual ERA was five point one six. So like it wasn't as bad as it looked. He wasn't great, but like he was still he was still missing bats. And um, there's probably some reason for optimism. Yeah, Flexen really interesting. Definitely going to be a player I'm interested to watch in uh, in 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 2021. That's obviously a pretty modest deal from the Mariners' perspective. So um, that uh, without a lot of risk for them. So they might have they might have uh, found something there because Flexen was was kind of an interesting prospect, not a great one, but like there was some reason to believe. But he, if I recall correctly, he kind of got rushed to the majors because the Mets were desperate for pitching. And <laughs> I just remember that. Yes, <laughs> wasn't exactly ready for prime time. So um, good good for him. Um, uh, my uh, free agent that we should be talking more about is uh, utility man Brad Miller. And I think it's gone kind of under the radar because he got hurt a few years ago and basically washed out and looked like he was done. And then he came back in the middle of 2018-19 with the Phillies. And then, of course, this year was a, a short year. So it's been a disjointed two years for um, Brad Miller with the Phillies in 2019 and the uh, Cardinals in 2020. But he's been pretty good, especially against right-handed batters, uh, right-handed pitchers. That is um, overall line of two forty-seven, three forty-three, five ten. So that's like an eight sixty OPS. And his expected weight on base for his right-handed pitchers is like in the top ten percent in baseball amongst pitch amongst um, amongst batters who faced at least a thousand pitches from right-handers over the last two seasons. So it's the course of two seasons, but like he's actually been pretty consistently good, especially against right-handed pitchers. Um, he's seen time at left field, right field, third base, second base, even some shortstop, although he was mostly a DH for the Cardinals in 2020. Um, he hit 30 home runs for the Rays in 2016. As Tommy Edmond, his teammate uh, on the Cardinals said last September, he hits the ball really, really hard. I like Brad Miller. He signed a one-year, $2 million deal last winter. And like as someone who can fill in in a bunch of spots and crush right-handers. He's not even that old. I think he's 31 now or 32. Um, I think he's a, he's like, he's rosterable on almost any, almost any team. 
Yeah, I like this one. Um, I saw that you were going to pick him and I liked it a lot. I, it is funny to think about, um, I guess, like five or six years ago that that trio of Seattle infielders that were going to be like the next you know big thing for the Mariners. And it was Brad Miller, Nick Franklin and Chris Taylor. And to see, you know, what wildly different career paths they've had, you know, Miller has bounced around like a lot. Uh, Seattle, Tampa, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Philly, St. Louis. And that's just in the majors. I think he's had some other minor league stops too, but you're right. Anybody who can crush the ball and uh, can play a bunch of spots, I think is is valuable. So that's that's a good one. Let's finish up here um, with our purpose pitch. And these are our rants. And mine is kind of general. This is like, it's like a hitting conversation I've seen on Twitter. And I don't know, it's, it's by someone who claims that, you know, they are, I don't want to say a hitting guru, but someone who is a, uh, you know, in the game at lower levels. And just talking about, you know, the increase in strikeouts and the conversation is kind of going back and forth between why are there an increase in strikeouts. And one side of the argument is that because hitters don't care that there are strikeouts and that the only thing that needs to be done to fix that is to change the way hitters are taught. And man, I just cannot disagree with that more. There are strikeouts because pitchers are insane because velocity is up and breaking pitches are up and everybody is designing their pitches and nobody gets to see a starter the fourth time through anymore ever. You don't get to come up in the eighth inning and see that tiring guy that you've seen three times is throwing 86. You get to throw see someone throwing 96 from uh, a, a new arm angle. Like look at what the Rays did in the playoffs. So I am fully in favor of getting more contact into the game, but it's not going to be teaching hitters something new. It has to be rule changes. That's the only way it's going to happen. And uh, that is a hill I will die lonely on, I think. I'm with you. Um, I feel like we could have that rant every week on this show. So it's, yeah, uh, I feel like I maybe have. That's what worried me. <laughs> we should just bring it, we can just bring it back every every few months because it's true and people need to be reminded of it. Uh, my rant is about a specific player, um, uh, and that player is Gary Sanchez, catcher on the Yankees, who gets a lot of attention um, by virtue of being the Yankees and by virtue of being a hyped prospect at one time who has just been seems to be a disappointment overall. And I think it's fair to say he's been a little bit of a disappointment overall. The problem with the Gary Sanchez discourse, as it were, is that we need to stop discussing him in the context of the expectations that were set for him like five years ago. He is a flawed player, but that doesn't mean he's not without value. So if you can just like forget what the expectations were, and I need to think people just need to forget about what the expectations for Gary Sanchez were. Um, you know, he's now he's going into his age 28 season. So let's forget about, you know, what he was when he signed and was getting hyped like literally 10 years ago as a teenager in the Yankees system. Okay. Gary Sanchez is a catcher who is a below average framer and he has lots of pass balls, which get a lot, a lot of attention, but among catchers, over the last three years, he's fourth in expected weight on base and second in expected slugging. So when it comes to hit, catchers with power, he is among the best of the best. Even this year, he was, I mean, he had just an awful year. His raw stats were terrible. He had 147, 253, 365, um, but his hard hit rate was 50%, a career high and in the top 8% of the league. So he has value as an offensive player. He's had weirdly terrible batting averages on balls in play. Some of that is because he hits into the shift a lot and is really slow. So he comes by it honestly. He's never going to be a high Babbitt player. But for example, in 2017, his Babbitt was 304. This year it was 159. So I think you just have to sort of take a step back and forget Gary Sanchez, future superstar, because he's probably not 
future superstar, but do you think of him as Gary Sanchez, guy who could th- hit 30 home runs and help your team win? If used correctly, he's a guy you want on your team. I, I would agree with that. I'm a little down on him ever bouncing back, but I thought the talk about maybe non-tendering him was crazy because there are several teams who just do not have a catcher and would have jumped on it right away. Um, I think that's fair. I think that's a good one. I um, I will back this rant. I have no complaints with your rant. So here's me over here clapping for your rant. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.